Part 2 of The Edge of the Knife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Giulio Marchini. The Edge of the Knife by H. Bean Piper. Part 2. Stanley Vile had a thin, dark-eyed face. He was frowning as he set down his coffee cup. Ed, you ought to know better than to try to kid your lawyer, he said. You say Whitburn's trying to force you to resign? With your contract, he can't do that, not without good and sufficient cause. And under the faculty tenure law, that means something just an inch short of murder in the first degree. Now what's Wilbur got on you? Beat around the bush and try to build a background? Or come out with it at once and fill in the details afterward? He debated mentally for a moment, then decided upon the latter course. Well, it happens that I have the ability to prehend future events. I can, by concentrating bring into my mind the history of the world, at least in general outline, for the next five thousand years. Whitburn thinks I'm crazy, mainly because I get confused at times and forget that something I know about hasn't happened yet. Viles snatched the cigarette from his mouth to keep from swallowing it. As it was, he choked on a mouthful of smoke and coughed violently then sat back in the booth seat, staring speechlessly. It started a little over three years ago, Chalmers continued, just after New Year's, 1970. I was getting up a series of seminars for some of my postgraduate students on extrapolation of present social-political trends to the middle of the next century, and I began to find that I was getting some very fixed and definite ideas of what the world of 2050 to 2070 would be like. Completely unified world. Abolition of all national states under a single world sovereignty. Colonies on Mars and Venus. That sort of thing. Some of these ideas didn't seem quite logical. A number of them were complete reversals of present trends and a lot seemed to depend on arbitrary and unpredictable factors. Mind, this was before the first rocket landed on the moon, when the whole moon rocket and lunar base project was a triple-top secret. But I knew, in the spring of 1970, that the first unmanned rocket would be called the Kilroy, and that it would be launched sometime in 1971. You remember, when the news was released, it was stated that the rocket hadn't been christened until the day before it was launched, when somebody remembered that old Kilroy was here thing from the Second World War. Well, I knew about it over a year in advance. Vile had been listening in silence. He had a naturally skeptical face. His present expression mightn't really mean that he didn't believe what he was hearing. How'd you get all this stuff? In dreams? Chalmers shook his head. It just came to me. I'd be sitting reading, or eating dinner, or talking to one of my classes, and the first thing I'd know, something out of the future would come bubbling up in me. It just kept pushing up into my conscious mind. 
I wouldn't have an idea of something one minute, and the next it would just be part of my general historic knowledge. I'd know it as positively as I know that Columbus discovered America in 1492. The only difference is that I can usually remember where I've read something in past history, but my future history I know without knowing how I know it. Ah, that's the question, Vile Pounds. You don't know how you know it. Look, Ed, we've both studied psychology, elementary psychology at least, Anybody who has to work with people these days has to know some psychology. What makes you sure that these prophetic impressions of yours aren't manufactured in your own subconscious mind? Well, that's what I thought at first. I thought my subconscious was just building up this stuff to fill the gaps in what I've produced from logical extrapolation. I've always been a stickler for detail, he added parenthetically. It would be natural for me to supply details for the future, but, as I said, a lot of this stuff is based on unpredictable and arbitrary factors that can't be inferred from anything in the present. That left me with the alternatives of delusion or precognition, and if I ever came near going crazy, it was before the Kilroy landed and the news was released. After that, I knew which it was. And yet, you can't explain how you can have real knowledge of a thing before it happens, before it exists, Lyle said. I really don't need to. I'm satisfied with knowing that I know. But if you want me to furnish a theory, let's say that all these things really do exist, in the past or in the future, and that the present is just a moving knife edge that separates the two. You can't even indicate the present. By the time you make up your mind to say now and transmit the impulse to your vocal organs and utter the word, the original present moment is part of the past. The knife edge has gone over it. Most people think they know only the present. What they know is the past, which they have already experienced or read about. The difference with me is that I can see what's on both sides of the knife edge. Vile put another cigarette in his mouth and bent his head to the flame of his lighter. For a moment he sat motionless, his thin face rigid. What do you want me to do? he asked. I'm a lawyer, not a psychiatrist. I want a lawyer. This is a legal matter. Whitburn's talking about voiding my tenure contract. You helped draw it. I have a right to expect you to help defend it. Ed, have you been talking about this to anybody else? Lyle asked. You're the first person I've mentioned it to. It's not the sort of thing you'd bring up casually in a conversation. Then how did Whitburn get hold of it? He didn't, not the way I've given it to you. But I made a couple of slips now and then. I made a bad one yesterday morning. He told Vile about it, and about his session with the president of the college that morning. The lawyer nodded. That was a bad one, but you handled Whitburn the right way, Vile said. What he's most afraid of is publicity, getting the college mixed up in anything controversial, and above all, the reactions of the trustees, and people like that. 
if Dacker or anybody else makes any trouble, he'll do his best to cover for you. Not willingly, of course, but because he'll know that that's the only way he can cover for himself. I don't think you'll have any more trouble with him. If you can keep your own nose clean, that is. Can you do that? I believe so. Yesterday, I got careless. I'll not do that again. You'd better not, Vile hesitated for a moment. I said I was a lawyer, not a psychiatrist. I'm going to give you some psychiatrist advice, though. Forget this whole thing. You say you can bring these impressions into your conscious mind by concentrating? He waited briefly. Chalmers nodded, and he continued. Well, stop it. Stop trying to harbor the stuff. It's dangerous, Ed. Stop playing around with it. You think I'm crazy, too? Vile shook his head impatiently. I didn't say that, but I'll say now that you're losing your grip on reality. You are constructing a system of fantasies, and the first thing you know, they will become your reality, and the world around you will be unreal and illusory, and that's a state of mental incompetence that I can recognize as a lawyer. How about the Kilroy? Vile looked at him intently. Ed, are you sure you did have that experience? he asked. I'm not trying to imply that you're consciously lying to me about that. I'm suggesting that you manufactured a memory of that incident in your subconscious mind and are deluding yourself into thinking that you knew about it in advance. False memory is a fairly common thing in cases like this. Even the little psychology I know, I've heard about that. There's been talk about rockets to the moon for years. You included something about that in your future history fantasy. And then, after the event, you convinced yourself that you'd known all about it, including the impromptu christening of the rocket all along. A hot retort rose to his lips. He swallowed it hastily. Instead, he nodded amicably. That's a point worth thinking of, but right now, what I want to know is, will you represent me in case Whitmer does take this to court and does try to void my contract? Oh yes, as you said, I have an obligation to defend the contracts I draw up, but you'll have to avoid giving him any further reason for trying to void it. Don't make any more of these lips. Watch what you say, in class or out of it. And above all, don't talk about this to anybody. Don't tell anybody that you can foresee the future, or even talk about future probabilities. Your business is with the past. Stick to it. The afternoon passed quietly enough. Word of his defiance of Whitburn had gotten around among the faculty. Whitburn might have his secretary scared witless in his office, but not gossipless outside it, though it hadn't seemed to have leaked down the students yet. Handley, the Latin professor, managed to waylay him in a hallway, a hallway Handley didn't normally use. The tenure contract system under which we hold our positions here is one of our most valuable safeguards, he said, after exchanging greetings. It was won only after a struggle. 
in a time of public animosity toward all intellectuals, and even now our professional position would be most insecure without it. Yes, I found that out today, if I hadn't known it when I took part in the struggle you speak of. It should not be jeopardized, Handley declared. You think I'm jeopardizing it? Handley frowned. He didn't like being pushed out of the safety of generalization into specific cases. Well, now that you make that point, yes I do. If Dr. Whitburn tries to make an issue of, of what happened yesterday, and if the court decides against you, you can see the position all of us will be in. What do you think I should have done, given him my resignation when he demanded it? We have our tenure contract, and the system was instituted to prevent just the sort of arbitrary action Whitburn tried to take with me today. If he wants to go to court, he'll find that out. And if he wins, he'll establish a precedent that will threaten the security of every college and university faculty member in the state, in any state where there's a tenure law. Leonard Filch, the psychologist, took an opposite attitude. As Chalmers was leaving the college at the end of the afternoon, Hitch cut across the campus to intercept him. I heard about the way you stood up to Whitburn this morning, Ed, he said. Glad you did it. I only wish I'd done something like that three years ago. Think he's going to give you any real trouble? I doubt it. Well, I'm on your side if he does. I won't be the only one either. Well, thank you, Leonard. It always helps to know that. I don't think there will be any more trouble, though. He dined alone at his apartment and sat over his coffee, outlining his work for the next day. When both were finished, he dallied indecisively, Vile's words echoing through his mind and raising doubts. It was possible that he had been manufacturing the whole thing in his subconscious mind. That was, at least, a more plausible theory than any he had constructed to explain an ability to produce knowledge of the future. Of course, there was that business about the Kilroy. That had been too close on too many points to be dismissed as coincidence. Then again, Vile's words came back to disquiet him. Had he really gotten that before the event, as he believed, or had he only imagined later that he had? There was one way to settle that. He rose quickly and went to the filing cabinet where he kept his future history notes, and began pulling out envelopes. There was nothing about the Kilroy in the 20th century file where it should be, although he examined each sheet of notes carefully. The possibility that his notes on that might have been filed out of place by mistake occurred to him. He looked in every other envelope. The notes, as far as they went, were all filed in order, and each one bore, beside the future date of occurrence, the date on which the knowledge, or must he call it delusion, had come to him, but there was no note on the landing of the first unmanned rocket on Luna. He put the notes away and went back to his desk, rummaging through the drawers and finding nothing. He searched everywhere in the apartment where a sheet of paper could have been mislaid, taking all his books, one by one, from the shelves and leafing through them, even books he knew he had not touched for more than three years. 
In the end, he sat down again at his desk, defeated. The note on the Kilroy simply did not exist. Of course, that didn't settle it, as finding the note would have. He remembered, or believed he remembered, having gotten that item of knowledge or delusion in 1970, shortly before the end of the school term. It hadn't been until after the fall opening of school that he had begun making notes. He could have had the knowledge of the robot rocket in his mind then, and neglected putting it on paper. He undressed, put on his pajamas, poured himself a drink, and went to bed. Three hours later, still awake, he got up and poured himself another bigger drink. Somehow, eventually, he fell asleep. The next morning, he searched his desk and bookcase in the office at the school. He had never kept a diary. Now he was wishing that he had. That might have contained something that would be evidence, one way or the other. All day, he vacillated between conviction of the reality of his future knowledge and resolution to have no more to do with it. Once he decided to destroy all the notes he had made, and thought of making a special study of some facet of history, and writing another book to occupy his mind. After lunch, he found that more data on the period immediately before the Thirty Days' War was coming into his consciousness. He resolutely suppressed it, knowing as he did that it might never come to him again. That evening, too, he cooked dinner for himself at his apartment and laid out his classwork for the next day. He'd better not stay in that evening. Too much temptation to settle himself by the living room fire with his pipe and his notepad and indulge in the vice he had determined to renounce. After a little debate, he decided upon a movie. He put on again the suit he had taken off on coming home and went out. End of Part 2 Recording by Giulio Marchini The Edge of the Knife by H. Bean Piper